Sure was nice of Chicken Boy to give us a skeleton key. I'm pretty sure it was a matter of the goodness of his heart. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with, and right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week we've got an interview for you with Amandra Hendricks and Charles Walforth, authors of Beyond Earth. John Timmer talks to them about what we need to do to really colonize space. But before that, let's have a quick recap of this week's episode. What's on your mind, Sergeant? My dad. He's going to be very disappointed in you. You should prepare for that. Season two is rapidly drawing to a close, as is Bobby Draper's career with the MCRN Marines. What happened to my team? Look at a firing squad for this. Were you testing a weapon on us? On your own soldiers? The Martian powers that be are furious that she spilled the beans about the man without the vac suit on Ganymede, and the feeling is mutual after she discovers her and her fire team were used as live targets for a sales demo. Did you get a good deal? Put it in order? Over on Earth, Aeronite's also in deep trouble. In the absence of Jules Pierre Mao, he's going to take the fall for Eros almost wiping out life on Earth. My good friend Jules Pierre Mao. He's not here to pay for his crimes, they're going to take it out on me. Now, I don't know about you, but I loved some of the scenes with Alex and the Rosie this week. That stellar cartography hologram was extremely cool, and I loved the slingshot maneuver. Can't risk the broadcast going to give up our location, but goddammit, we've got to get a message down to them somehow. Oh, for Pete, I hate that thing. Observant viewers will remember the idea of slingshotting, which is where you fly your ship around the solar system using gravity wells and thrusters instead of your Epstein drive, was introduced a while back with some kids betting on it in a bar, I think on series. As it happens, showrunner Ren Shankar isn't actually that happy with the scene for reasons that he goes into in a post over at Dan Abraham's site. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can find the link to that in our post this week. It smells like black ops to me. What do you say, you agree? Hmm. You're right. Again, the little details about the universe of the Expanse continued to delight. I love May's animated backpack. It and the smart pots that we saw last week show us how ubiquitous and disposable some kinds of technology are by this point. But my favourite little moment, and I can't be alone here, was when Alex met up with the rest of the crew on Ganymede. We got the figure in. Maybe they're looking for the exact same thing that we are, so then the Ross and I, we, we, we... It seems that in this timeline, talking about your ship like a person is not the dumb thing. Thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are? Well, I'm a writer. I'm based in Alaska. I have written a lot about uh, science, environment, you know, things are on Earth. <laughs> and uh, got together with Amanda to, you know, write about something that was like way, way beyond anything that I had ever written about. Although it turns out that there's a lot about space colonization that you can learn about from Earth colonization. And I had written quite a bit about that. I'm Amanda Hendricks, and I'm a planetary scientist. I study mostly moons in the solar system, including Earth's moon and uh, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. I'm active on the Cassini mission, which is in orbit at Saturn, and it's coming to a close, sadly, this year, but it's been a big part of my life for the last nearly 20 years. It's hard to imagine it not. I know, it's really sad. But I worked on the Galileo mission at Jupiter also, and I work on the LRO mission in orbit at the moon, and so it's just really fun. I love studying moons and small bodies in the solar system and what they're made out of and how they're evolving and what their histories are. So how did this book come about? We were introduced by a literary agent who thought we would be a good team to write a book about space colonization. And so we thought about it and put our heads together for about a year, <laughs> getting our concept together. And we really wanted, we decided together that we wanted to make a book that was uh, as factually based as possible. We, we did not want it to be 
uh, sci-fi or uh, fantasy land type of book at all. And so we, we had a lot of fun, you know, talking about how we were going to put this all together and how we were going to do it. It was a lot of work, and it took us about four years uh, in all to do it, but I think we put together something really good and interesting. One of the aspects of having the um, sort of this joint project is having to sort of meld our different personalities and outlooks in that uh, Amanda's the, the big time tech enthusiast has got a very optimistic view of science and space and I've written more about the environment and I tend to be more skeptical and, and less excited about that stuff. So I think what happened is it, it allowed us to come to some agreements that uh, gave a really good balance to the um, outlook of the book, that it's not just sort of starry-eyed enthusiasm, but it's also not super pessimistic in the end. So why don't you describe its, its basic premise? It's a book about space colonization, and it's about all the issues surrounding how we can make that happen under the assumption that we're sending humans to the outer solar system. And the reason is, is that, and we spend a lot of time going through why this destination in the outer solar system, which is Titan, the moon of Saturn, is the best place in the solar system for humans to set up a long-term, self-sustaining colony. We talk a lot about why we even want to set up a colony elsewhere in the solar system. And uh, we set up a scenario for, you know, in reality, why that would actually happen. And all of the issues about how we need to make it happen. And the hurdles that we need to overcome. You know, there's a lot of medical issues that need to be resolved with how humans can survive in microgravity and in the radiation environment in particular. And um, propulsion is a big thing. How are, how are we going to get to these places in the solar system fast enough that humans can survive it? And why Titan? You know, we talk a lot about why Titan is actually the best place in the solar system. A lot of people think about Mars, and Mars is where NASA is currently planning on sending humans, and that's great as a stepping stone, but it's actually not the best place for a long-term settlement by any means. So uh, there's a lot of issues that we talk about. Who would be the right crew to go on the first mission? How would you actually consider setting up you know, a new uh, society on Titan? And where is it going to go in the future? And, you know, we're talking generations in the future. It's going to be a whole new culture, cultures. And how is that going to work? And how are people even going to look in, in growing up in that uh, microgravity environment, and, you know, in a whole different world? So a lot of interesting philosophical and ethical issues, I think. Well, I think one of the things that we did in, in developing this was try to constrain what the scenario we're developing by what we thought saw as the realities, which is that people aren't going to build colonies in space for absolutely no reason. It's going to be a really expensive and challenging thing to do. And so you have to think about, like, what are the barriers to doing it? What are the costs? And then what are the drivers? And to do that, we sort of tried to think about, like, why, why would people want to do this? And, and what kinds of planets would that rule out? You know, and so we sort of, a lot of focus has been put on, the, on Mars. And we just couldn't really come up with any reason why people would go to Mars and live underground. You know, the reasons that would drive you to do that, you could kind of live underground on Earth if you're worried about, you know, some, something, you know, something uh, horrendous happening on Earth. So but developing these constraints and then a, a forward scenario, we were trying to create sort of a thought experiment that the reader could run in their own mind and say, yeah, I could see why that really would happen. And, and or, or maybe you disagree and you can, you can pick our argument apart, but it's... In that way, we're trying to make something that they will carry, you know, that the reader can sort of go along with and or not go along with, and it's going to be more interesting than just speculation. 
you said there's a lot of disadvantages to Mars. Do you want right. to name a few? <laughs> <laughs> I'll start. The number one disadvantage is, because there are some advantages, and well, let me start with the advantage. I'll be positive. It's relatively close. And that's, I think, probably one of the main reasons why we're talking about going there now. It's relatively accessible. I won't mention that we haven't left low Earth orbit in decades. So it's not that accessible, obviously, but uh, hopefully we'll get there. But it is relatively close, but it doesn't have much of an atmosphere. And that's the main showstopper. It's got a thin atmosphere, no magnetosphere, and so that's why Charles mentioned that if you go there and live there for any period of time, you're gonna to have to live underground because you're gonna to have to have shielding from all the radiation that's very damaging. And if you're gonna go live somewhere else, I don't understand why you'd wanna go and live underground. It's not really an advantage. But as I said, it's, it is important for us to get past low earth orbit and to get somewhere so we can keep moving forward uh, with humans in space, that, that is important. So we do need to get to Mars. And we do need to use it as a stepping stone to better and more places in the solar system. Considering Titan's environment, incredibly thick atmosphere, not a lot of sunlight reaches the surface, and you would have to be, you know, enclosed the vast majority of the time. So how, how does that differ from being underground, oh, practically? Okay, well, there's a few things. The thick atmosphere is a real advantage in lots of ways, but the first way, the number one way in my mind is that it's a shield from all that damaging radiation. So you don't have to live underground. It is darkish there. It's not completely dark by any means. I've heard it compared to a few minutes after sunset on Earth. So pretty fine, I think, and it is very cold. But the nice thick atmosphere means that you don't have to wear a pressure suit. So all you'd have to wear when you go outside is something to keep you warm and something to help you breathe because even though there's a thick atmosphere, there's no oxygen. So really manageable, I think. Lots of resources to make buildings and to heat them and to light them. So yeah, you'd be living indoors, but you can certainly go outside. And there's lots of uh, recreational activities. <laughs> Such as? Such as boating. <laughs> <laughs> and flying in the atmosphere. You could fly around on an airplane or you can fly around with wings strapped onto your arms because the gravity is low and the density is thick. And just to, to continue that comparison of Titan and, and Mars, you know, on Mars you, you're living essentially permanently underground. And so if you're expanding your habitat, you're doing some huge excavation work for everything you want to do. Um, on Titan, you've got these hydrocarbons that are more than abundant. They're just ubiquitous. And so you've got um, uh, materials to make plastics at, at, to, to any degree. And so you could uh, build big inflatable buildings as large as you want, and you can uh, burn the fuel there to create energy that will heat and, and, and inflate those buildings. And so you've got the opportunity for big indoor warm spaces, which I think as human beings, we're we're going to want, you know, I just think that to think of us burrowing, burrowing around underground on another planet as a permanent habitation just, just kind of stre stretches the credulity. Whereas Titan, there's this, um, I mean, if there's obviously it's cold and it's relatively dark, but all the resources you need are there to really build a big culture, you know, where people could actually just have a plastic extruder and just keep building and building and building. So instead of a metallurgy-based society, you view it as a polymer. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you obviously would need some metals, and we we're positing that you probably mine metals from asteroids. Um, but uh, for the most part, you, you would be sort of in this plastic, plastic world. So the the metals would be brought in externally. And there may be small amounts of metals in the interior of Titan, but I'm guessing it would be easier. It would be hard to access them. It would probably be easier to get them from the asteroid belt. So in in terms of you mentioned this as you know you could have a fuel cycle because there's water and you can get oxygen from that and so on. But how do you, how do you sort of open the cycle because right. you need to bring along an energy source like a nuclear reactor, and that's fine, that's doable, you can, I mean, we use them on spacecraft all the time, right? And you just take one and it lasts for decades to get you started. And um, there's lots of options. We talked about the hydrocarbons, but there's even other options like wind power, since there's a thick atmosphere and there are winds, and the winds get pretty high speed higher up in the atmosphere. So you could imagine a power station, a wind power station aloft um, somehow tethered to the ground. Even solar power, even though it's dim there, the sun is dim because you're 10 times farther out from the earth, from the sun, and there's a thick atmosphere that absorbs a lot of it. Still, you can set up a large solar array and generate significant power all around the globe. So it generates power all day long. So I think there's a lot of options for energy production. We can kind of start fresh. I feel like we could, even though we can burn hydrocarbons and do other chemical reactions to make energy, maybe we can get out of that paradigm a little bit. You know, we, we talk about it in the book a lot because that's what humans think about is burning hydrocarbons. But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but maybe we can start fresh. If you've got to make the oxygen to do it, then, you know, and you've now, already the, generated the electricity to do that. Right. That sort of changes the equation. Right. right. And that's the thing is because there's no oxygen in the atmosphere, we need to get water, which is frozen, and it, there's plenty of it. Uh, we have to do the electrolysis to break it up so that we can have the oxygen, but also then so we could just have the water for drinking and whatnot. And we've got to go through that process anyway. So you can use the oxygen for breathing or you can use it for combustion or both. One of the things that we tried to do in the book was we started out with this idea that the people, human nature is not going to change. Science is going to change. Engineering is going to change. Technology is going to change. But human will prob probably stay the same. So we can count on them having kind of the same motivations and making a lot of the same dumb mistakes that they make now, and also doing some of the same inspiring things. But they kind of made it fun because it gave us a, a platform to write some satirical uh, events happening in the far future as people are moving to another planet and they're messing up the environment on the other planet. And they are having the same issues about like corporate you know, stuff that's happening in this other celestial body. So that was something that turned out to be a really fun uh, part of the book. And we weren't really trying to... Um, get too hung up on being super serious about it. We know we're talking about the distant future and things could happen the way we say or, or might not. So um, in terms of burning fossil fuels, you know, we've got Exxon heading out there to uh, to do their best, right? That's going to be <laughs> part of the story. Yeah, so that's, you know, some people have suggested that an exotic form of life, you know, Titan has the ingredients for exotic forms of life. If we find something that on another moon or planet, do you think that sort of puts it off limits to this sort of plan? That was, in, a, in our scenario, we took the uh, approach that there would certainly be people who say it was off limits, but that others might not. And also, we think about our advanced party being robots and potential difficulty of explaining to the robots why this life form should be sacrosanct on another planet um, when their mission has been to send and pioneer that planet. So 
I mean, there's sort of different things going on, but, but we definitely did consider that. We, and we invented our idea of what that life form would be like and how people would respond to it and then the political issues that would pop up around that. But we brought it out there mainly to get people thinking and then they can think about it how they might want to you know, whether they agree with us or not. So you mentioned the sort of the biggest issue with Saturn compared to Mars is the distance traveled. So how does, how does that play out into any plans we'd have to have to get there? Right, so we need a new propulsion method, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually think we do anyway, even just for going to Mars, okay? Right now, a Mars journey of six months and then a stay of Mars on a few months and then a return journey, it's too long takes too long and it's not going to be safe. Too long as set by the radiation exposure? Yes, exactly. Too much radiation dosage. I really feel, and this is just my opinion, that you know NASA ought to be putting, and other agencies and companies, ought to be working together to really be working on a new propulsion technique. But certainly if we're going to Titan, we're going to need it. Because right now, uh, it took Cassini's spacecraft seven years to get there. So obviously if we're sending people out there using chemical propulsion, and taking seven years, that's unmanageable. How many gravity assists were involved in that? And that was a few gravity assists, too. <laughs> it used Earth, didn't it? It did use Earth once. Venus, Earth, maybe twice on Earth. Now I'm getting it mixed up with Galileo, actually. <laughs> I know Galileo did a Vega of Venus, Earth, Earth gravity assist. Cassini did Venus, Earth. And so that's not a realistic right, prospect for, for something right. with people on board. <laughs> so do you have any ideas on the propulsion in this? We do. We talk about a technique that is being studied, evidently, at NASA, called a quantum thruster. I don't think that many resources are being applied to it right now, but we think it's something that maybe could be a good option in the future and makes us hopeful that maybe there's something out there um, that can be used to get people there faster. The guy whose idea it is is named Sonny White, and we interviewed him a couple of times. He's at JSC, and uh, he's super brilliant, and you know, talks about quantum particles jumping out of nowhere and using those particles as fuel. Is this the thing that's known as the M drive? Or? I think it's related. It's a, a Q. It's a Q drive, which I think is close to an M drive, but I'm not sure what the difference is. All right. I mean, from the bottom line, I think that we found is that. There needs to be some significant investment in, in stretch technology that were a, a lot of what's being thought about in terms of human space travel is just a little increment beyond what we've known how to do for quite a while. And if we really are planning to send people like long term to other planets, even just to get to Mars safely and get back, a lot of the investment that should have taken place a long time ago hasn't. Part of which is to really quantify the danger from galactic cosmic rays and figure out like how much can we really take and what do we need to do about that. And then the whole propulsion thing, you know, that we, we have to have a new way of, of propelling spacecraft. I mean, Mars, you know, can maybe get to with a chemical spacecraft if we deal with all these other issues, and that's pretty, pretty far out. But to go anywhere else, we'd need a completely new kind of a propulsion. And so one of our thoughts in writing the book is, let's think about what our long-term goal is. Like, it, you know, let's start thinking about where we really want to go couple of generations from now so we can start focusing on that technology development because the way we're doing it now is not working. You know, we're not really making enough progress in dealing with these issues. And it's certainly not going to work for anywhere beyond Mars. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll get to Mars and then what? You know, are we going to have to wait 50 or 100 years till we are ready to go somewhere else? Let's not get to that point, that sort of post-Apollo point where nothing happened then for decades. 
uh, or not too much. I agree with Charles that we have a much longer term goal that we're shooting towards and have Mars be a stepping stone. Use everything that we do to advance toward that long term goal. In the panels we've studied, you know, the success or failure of NASA's manned space efforts have really come to that conclusion, like what is our goal, why are we doing this? Because a lot of the goals that are often held out there really don't make any sense. You know, that, that by the time we're able to do it, like robots are probably going to be able to do the vast majority of what we can do, to get even on Mars. Is it for technology development? Is it for like inspiring kids? Is, well, there might be really less, less expensive ways to do that. But then everybody, I think, feels like, no, we don't want to be stuck on this planet. We want to reach out to other planets eventually. And it's a long, far off goal. But if that's our real goal, let's like enunciate that and figure out how to invest in it how to do the research and how to sort of get there rather than sort of incrementally trying towards things that are not the real goal that we all care about. Does Saturn not have the same sort of levels of radiation in the environment that Jupiter has? It's less. Jupiter is super intense uh, and Saturn's less. But again, that uh, magnetosphere that Saturn has actually helps shield from some of the galactic cosmic rays. And the thick atmosphere of Titan helps shield from Saturn's charged particles and the galactic cosmic rays and solar wind particles, too. So it helps. Even with the best propulsion tech, presumably the colonists there will be pretty isolated from Earth. Mm -hmm. So right. do, you, do you see that as a problem? What challenges does that pose? Well, that's why, I mean, we posit Titan as a good place. And we're, we're not talking about coming and going and getting supplies from Earth and going back and forth on any regular time basis. We're talking about going there and staying forever. And that's one reason why Titan is really good because it has such tremendous resources. Um, so you don't have to keep coming back and forth or sending supply ships or something like that. So this would be uh, a settlement that is completely self-reliant. And it's okay that Earth is far away and hour and a half one-way light time and all that stuff for communications because it'll be its own society. One of the really fun parts about thinking about this idea of, of people being on Titan and ne never coming back is we have a lot of analogs in history, in human history, about what that's like. And so we kind of went back and studied colonies and how their cultures start to diverge from the, you know, from the mother country. And we, got, we see that happening. And in this case, their physiology would change too because you'd be in this low gravity, low light environment. So, it, you know, in our scenario later in the book, we're sort of imagining what it would be like out there. And uh, would they, at some point, not want any immigrants from Earth? You know, would they, like, have some big issues, like, with being sort of Titan nativists and, uh, and that kind of thing, which, again, was, like, let us get into some of the satirical aspects of it. Yeah, from what I understand so far, at least, instead of what I would, I would say is the sort of Spanish model of colonization, you're looking at something more like the Polynesian expansion, mm -hmm. where there are mm -hmm. outposts with a sparse bit of trade, but primarily each becomes self-sufficient. And then there's still communication and trade for centuries, but they're left to develop on their own. Right. So, mm -hmm. And also, we talked in the book about how with the Polynesians, you know, they kind of didn't know where they were going, right? They just kind of set off and hope to find an island or some place to go, really. And at least we know Titan is there. <laughs> But it's not, it's not going to be like, oh, if we don't like it, we're going to come back. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a forever type of choice. You know, assume we can get anything we want into low Earth orbit economically. What are sort of the big challenges beyond that? You mentioned propulsion and health. 
Are there any others that stand out to you that we'd need to solve? And those are pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are big. I mean, we, we sort of like the, we, at least I didn't really understand that just the severity of the challenge of the galactic cosmic rays before we started working on the book and the fact that they're kind of like the, the monsters in the moat around the earth. You know, we don't really don't know how to get anywhere. And the chances for shielding a spacecraft, you know, you need a couple of meters of water all the way around everybody in the whole ship. And that just seems so far out that we saw that really the only solution for it is to um, go faster. And we talked to people who are working on trying to develop some kind of magnet-based shielding, and uh, people who are working on uh, artificial gravity. And all of these ideas, you end up with spacecraft that just seem like they're out of a carnival. You know, they're just so complicated that it really seems improbable that they'll ever really fly. Whereas if you can get there a lot faster, you kind of solve a lot of issues at once. You know, you've got an issue of how much food you can carry. You've got an issue of the radiation. And the only simple solution to all of them is a much, much faster spacecraft. To us, that was sort of the final thing that sort of told us that's, that's what we're going to need before we really start moving to other planets is a, is a whole new generation of spacecraft. You know, you would ultimately set up this sort of primarily polymer-based economy, I guess, or resource economy on Titan. What resources does Titan not have that you'd need to get there? And more generally, you know, as we expand into the solar system, what would need to be shipped around and what can we get locally? The, the main thing that we talked about was metals because Titan, I mean, we need the basics, right? Air, oxygen for breathing and, and water. And Titan has both indirectly anyway. So we, it's got the basics, but for infrastructure and you know, building some things, we do need metals. And as I mentioned, I think it will probably be easier to get those elsewhere and more accessible at some metallic, you know, rich asteroids. But, you know, in terms of energy, in ter I just kind of imagine in the future, future generations where new cultures have been developed on Titan, that people will develop what they need right there. And even, you know, art forms and music and, you know, maybe they'll be playing polymer bass guitars, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just but think they're going to make do. Local computer manufacturing and everything. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, and by that time, who knows uh, how much metal you'll need for a computer, right? right. I mean, it could be completely different. And if, and if you've got, as long as you've got, like, a, a really abundant supply of energy and you've got protection from radiation... Um, and you've got the, sort of this abundant supply of material to do all kinds of chemistry, you can almost just imagine it, just about anything, right? I mean, it does, you, it's easy to imagine a self-sufficient colony in those circumstances if you can get people there and if you can get sort of get the thing going and, um, and sort of meet, meet the threshold that we can't meet now, which is sort of the, the travel problem. So you do seem to think that there will be some sort of organized asteroid mining and sending some resources around in, in your future solar yeah. system. We didn't get into it in any depth, but it, we, we kind of figured that you, you're, we're just assuming that you're going to need some metal. Mm -hmm. And if you do need metal, it's going to be hard to find the outer solar system. So that's, we didn't get at, uh, tremendously farther into that, although we did think about, you know, that 
prospecting would probably be a lot like prospecting is on Earth. You know, somebody's going to fly around until they find a promising asteroid and sell it to some big company, right? That would be able to mine it or even move, move the whole darn thing to Titan and then mine it there. But it's non-trivial because the asteroid belt is really big and there's a lot more space than asteroids in it, right? So it's hard to, we didn't set it up as, oh, we'll just stop in the asteroid belt and pick one up, you know? It's gonna be a lot harder than that, so, um, and they won't be strategically placed necessarily when you want them where you want them, so. It might be easier to get one of the Trojan asteroids or something. Maybe it would be easier to get a Trojan asteroid if they're metal rich. I don't think we know just yet. And, and you know, the original, in, in pretty much all co colonies in the past that were sort of large sort of industrial colonies, there's, a, there's usually a ton of government support and there's a ton of home country support that flows to the colony and until it reaches some kind of a critical mass. And that's surely going to take place, too. It's, you wouldn't so it would just show up there in your, in your undies and just try <laughs> to create a colony. You're going to go with a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff from home, and it'll be a while before it actually becomes truly self-supporting in that way. And that's how we set it up in the book, too, where we had an initial uh, robotic crew to get everything set up and then an initial crew of four or five or six people. And then, then the ships of 100 people started coming and bringing supplies, but also bringing the settlers. So you sort of mentioned that it's not just that the locals would develop their own culture, it's that there might be cultural tensions develop over time. So you, you don't see humans getting past the sort of tribalism that we can't shake on Earth once we get beyond Earth. That was one of our parameters going into this, was the idea that people are probably, human nature's not going to change. It hasn't so far. <laughs> Um, and technology makes us more powerful, but we haven't really ever gotten to the sort of the Star Trek world where, where we get, you know, we go beyond war and we go beyond conflict. I mean, they're still fighting other, other species even in Star Trek. And, and it allows you to create a future scenario if you do give yourself those kinds of constraints. That was one of the things that we did, and we spent a year talking about this and figuring out how we were going to do it. And one of the things we had to, boundaries we had to put on ourselves was that we're not going to just make up anything, you know, we're not going to, you know, you could, that's always the DSX marketing. You know, well, in the future, there's going to be some technology that makes you able to do this, or there'll be some new political movement that'll solve all these problems. We just didn't want to do that, because then you're just really doing an exercise in imagination, and we really wanted to do an exercise that was about science and about engineering and projecting that into the future. You mentioned things like art and maybe music and things developing locally. How much of Earth culture do you think is shaped merely by the fact that we are on Earth, and how, how do you think that might change in a very alien environment like that? We thought about that a bit. We, a little bit. We didn't go into it too much, but we did project some ideas about just a few kind of light concepts on how we thought some cultures might evolve and what it might be like. But it's really, I mean, that's way in the future, and it's really anybody's guess of what might happen, right? And there's probably going to be a lot of different things happening because, again, it's probably not just going to be all one culture. I mean, Titan's pretty big. You know, it's bigger than the moon. And so people are going to be living everywhere, and maybe there'll be the Lake District up north where people do things differently than at the dry equatorial, you know, latitudes. <laughs> I think everybody's going to be different there. Yeah. One of the things that we did in, in developing our projections about what culture might be like in the future was look at um, the way culture developed in the American colony. You know, the fact that Europeans coming to the east coast of America, and then when you had Americans going to the west coast of America or to Alaska, um, there's sort of these repeating 
patterns where the culture in the new place is really dependent on the old place and they're trying to copy it and they're trying to show that they're just as good as they were back home. Meanwhile, they're creating their own history, they're starting their own historical society, they're creating their own mythology about the brave pioneers. And then after a good long time, they become self-confident enough that they create a real, their own unique culture, which, you know, in America, it like, took really until the 20th century before you, like, we had our own music, which was jazz, which was sort of based on African music and European music, and this conglomeration became a new thing. And so it takes a really, really long time. But you can very much imagine that if people on Titan were separated by that, you know, hour and a half of, that it takes light to get from Earth, that process is going to start. They're, they're going to start wanting to be like back on Earth and just as good as, and then eventually they're going to do their own thing, and then they're going to start defining themselves as how they're different from. Last question I've got really is, you know, I talked a little bit about how we all sort of came of age during the Voyagers and the Challenger era. What has changed in your perception of what the outer solar system is like in, in that time that makes this either more or less difficult? Oh, well, I think that Cassini has kind of changed everything and Galileo, but the whole idea of Galileo going uh, and orbiting Jupiter and seeing these moons and the whole system uh, with much better eyes than Voyager was able to on, on its flybys and discovering what the system was like and discovering the probable ocean under the surface of Europa and uh, that as a potentially habitable world uh, by some life form. And then Cassini in orbit at Saturn for way longer than Galileo was at Jupiter and learning all about that system very well. They weren't specks of light from Voyager's eyes, but they were just little round balls, those moons. And so now we understand them as worlds on their own. And each of those moons is really unique and different and doing its own thing. And, you know, you've got Enceladus that, who would have thought it's as active as it is? I mean, we had some clues, but I think it took everybody a little bit by surprise that it's got this active plume with the South Pole. So that's really exciting. And then, of course, Titan. And thanks to the Huygens probe, we know what the surface is like, and we know a lot about what the atmospheric conditions are like and, and uh, temperature conditions and the fact that there's not a global surficial ocean. You know, <laughs> that was the one thing that we didn't know what it was going to be like on the surface there. So the fact that Titan now, we know so much about it and that we know it as a world helps us to understand and really spark our imagination that we could actually go there. And we know that it is actually habitable for humans. We need to make some advances first, but I wasn't thinking pre-Cassini that we're going to find a place that's better to go than Mars. And it turns out it's way better, actually. Now, we still have a lot to do. We need to send more spacecraft back to the Saturn system to further study Titan, completely map it out in radar and uh, in other wavelengths and understand better what the surface is made out of and how things change seasonally, continue to evolve seasonally. We've gotten a little bit of that with Cassini. But I, I think that Cassini has just been phenomenal in helping us to learn about Titan and uh, the whole Saturn system. So it's really, you know, to see Titan go from an orange fuzzy ball, as we saw with Voyager, to really this living world 
and it is living in a lot of ways because it's got seasonal changes and it's evolving and maybe there's some life there. It has just been super exciting and really a pleasure. The, the only thing I don't think we talked about was commercial space. We, we spent a good deal of time talking about that and the fact that it kind of changes the, the conversation about like what's possible. You know, and it's really easy now to see cost of launch just plummeting and a really rapid sort of movement of people into, into orbit and then also into maybe, um, you know, super rapid transport around the Earth using something like, you know, the Virgin Galactic uh, kind of spacecraft. And um, we see that sort of as a doorway towards, towards what we're talking about, you know, add, adding to it like the, the, the kind of research that commercial industry is never going to do, which is sort of the big reach, you know, the stretch to some co completely new ideas. But for, for any of these projects, I think going to Mars and especially if going to Titan, they're really big, right? They're very complicated, very expensive, and no one country's agency is going to be expected to do it on its own. And we already do a lot of international collaboration with unmanned spacecraft like Cassini. So international collaboration and then public private partnerships are really important in combining innovation and know-how to get us, you know, literally off the ground. It's going to take a big effort. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time with the yeah. first reusable yeah. rocket yeah. having I, yeah. <laughs> gone up and landed. Uh -huh. and mm -hmm. Yeah, it's cool. They're doing it. All right. That's, that's everything I've got. Fantastic. Okay. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more. <laughs>